We are beginning this morning our summer-long series, 10 weeks. Uh, we're going to be looking at the Ten Commandments. We're going to be looking at, at one commandment a week for the next 10 weeks. And so this morning we're going to begin in Exodus chapter 20, and in just a couple of minutes we will get to that passage. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, if you don't have your Bible with you, I encourage you if, you, if you have a Bible, bring it with you on Sunday. I, I, there's just something when I'm sitting listening that helps me if I have a, a Bible with me, and I know a lot of you do that, and it's on your phone or, or other device, but I would encourage you to have one. But if you don't, don't worry, it'll be on the screen uh, in just a minute. But I've probably, this sermon series, maybe more than, than others, I've had people say, uh, kind of why are we doing Ten Commandments? There are a lot of things you could do in the summer. What, what made you pick that? Uh, and, and the thinking behind it, although you, they're not saying it, but I can kind of hear it in the tone is, really? <laughs> the Ten Commandments? It, isn't that, uh, you know, isn't that a little bit old? Uh, that's way back in the back of the Old Testament. Maybe there are more important topics that we should be trying to tackle here at Green Tree. Uh, maybe we should be thinking more about evangelism and how do we share our faith with others. Uh, certainly a sermon series on marriage and family could be really helpful for all of us who are, who are, are married or raising children or children being raised. Uh, others will say, you know, there, there's some spiritual disciplines that we really ought to be trying to tackle. And in the New Testament, a little bit more relevant than the Old Testament. I, I think that those are all fair questions. I think those are all fair observations. And certainly all of those topics that I just mentioned are, are well worth our study. So why the Ten Commandments? Why spend time looking at the quote-unquote the law when the gospel has clearly redefined the law? And so I, I think that's a fair question, an honest question. And I'd like to tell you three of the reasons why we're going to be doing this sermon series. And hopefully uh, that will help you to engage in this passage of Scripture uh, with, a, with, a, with a serious approach of wanting to, to hear what the Lord has to say to us. The first reason is this. When you study the life of Jesus, he very clearly affirms the Old Testament law uh, in a variety of ways. I'm just going to give you a couple this morning. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, don't make a mistake here. Don't think I've come to abolish the law or do away with the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And part of what we're going to see is this sermon series is unwraps is how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these least, uh, the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And then a little further along in Jesus' ministry, a lawyer asks him one day, teacher, which is the great, uh, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. All of these two commandments, or on these two commandments, depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus is quoting there out of Deuteronomy chapter 6 and out of Leviticus chapter 19. So clearly, Jesus, as the author of the Old Testament law, is also the fulfillment of the law. Therefore, he affirms it. So I think it's worth our attention for that reason. Secondly, I think it's very worth our attention, very much worth our attention, because the Ten Commandments show us our need for a Savior. If you give an honest look at the Ten Commandments, and you walk away with a, uh, a thought, anything other than I can't do that, you're not looking honestly at the Ten Commandments. I, I can't even begin to keep the Ten Commandments today 
much less for all of my life. And the commandments, according to the New Testament, part of their use in our lives is to show us how much we need a Savior. So the Apostle Paul, who spent his early life trying to keep the commandments before he was converted to Christianity, after he became a Christian, he said this, we know that the law is spiritual. In other words, we know that the law is good, and we know the reason the law is good is because it's from God himself, therefore it's spiritual, but what about me? Paul says, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. The notion there is a notion of slavery. I am a slave to sin. I can't stop sinning even if I want to. It has too much power. It has too much control. The Ten Commandments remind us of that. Paul says later on, to to make the point even more clear, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul wouldn't know that if he didn't have the Ten Commandments. If he didn't have the law in front of him, he wouldn't understand uh, the futility of trying to keep them as a person who is by nature sinful. And so I believe that the Ten Commandments heighten our awareness of our need for a Savior. And thirdly, the law shows us the, the character of the lawgiver. When you read a document, whatever that document might be, you get some insight into the author's heart, into the author's intention. Think about the Declaration of Independence of this country. Think about the preamble to the Declaration. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, to establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity to ordain and establish the Constitution of the United States. In the Declaration itself, it says this, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That document says something about the authors. Now that document and those authors, uh, the document is and the authors were flawed. Not everybody, when those words were penned, that lived in the 13 colonies at the time were free. In fact, about 18% of the entire population of the United States, which at that time, uh, the 13 colonies I should say, was about 2.5 million people, about 18% of those people lived in slavery lived in bondage. And so while the the signers of the Declaration of Independence had a good notion of freedom, it wasn't a perfect notion of freedom, but it certainly started us down the road. I would argue historically that when the Declaration of Independence, when the Constitution was written, that that was the death knell for slavery in the United States. Now, did it take way too long for us to come to the correct conclusion? Absolutely. Did it take far too many lives sacrificed on the battlefield for sensible people to understand that enslaving another human being was absolutely wrong and abominable? Yes. Do we still struggle in our day and age with with issues between races in our country? Absolutely. But the character of the document says that everybody should enjoy freedom. And once that was said, there's no turning back. There's something about the character of the person or the author that's in the document itself. And I believe that what we see when we read the 10 words of God, the 10, the 10 commandments of God, we begin to see the character of God in a very positive way. 
God says to us, there are no other gods. And as we see this morning, he's going to say, therefore, because all the other gods are pretend gods, don't put any of them before me. That's a good thing. If he is the one and only God, that's a very important thing for us to know. When he says, you know what, work six days, but take a day of rest, that's really good. God knows that our bodies and our minds and our hearts need to kind of, kind of pause and, and, and get some rest so that we can re-engage with our work. Isn't it nice that God said, take a day off? A lot of you work for people that, that when you take a day off, they look at you like, boy, you're being lazy. You're not committed to the cause. And God says, don't show up for work on the seventh day. Rest. I think that's really wonderful. When God says, honor your parents. As a parent, I used to show that verse to my kids all the time. It's one of the best verses in the Bible. And I'm sure they're now having children, showing them to their children. When God says in a host of different ways in the Ten, Ten Commandments, don't hurt one another. Those are good things. It says something about the character of God. So with those three kind of why answers in mind, we're going to jump into Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. This morning, we're also going to read Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. And out of the Gospels, we're going to read John chapter 6, verse 38 and 40. Hear the word of God. And God spoke all these words, saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then Jesus speaking to a group of his critics in John chapter 6 says this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone be glory. Will you pray with me? <coughs> Excuse me. Father, we come to uh, your word this morning, the word that you spoke to the people of Israel thousands of years ago. We come to the character of your heart. We come to the motives behind the words. And you are glorious. You are not only majestic and beautiful, but you are merciful and you are kind. Father, thank you that if we see this word as you intended us to see it, it is the word of life. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you want to teach us this morning. Father, my words are insufficient. There's no way that I can do justice to this text and Lord, we don't come here to hear man's words. We come here to hear the word of God. It is only your truth that will last eternally. It is the truth. It is the only truth. And so we pray that you would speak into our hearts and our minds and that you would give us the faith by the power of your spirit and your word to trust you and to love you in response to the love that you have given us. Father, forgive my sin. Please don't let me be a disturbance or a hindrance to your word this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So you shall have no other gods before me. Here's our sermon in a sentence. God's identity and his activity demand my absolute loyalty and worship. Does he have them? Does God have my loyalty and worship? Because if I look at who he is and I look at what he does, and I see that in the Ten Commandments, so we're going to unpack that over the next ten weeks, hopefully where that will lead me to is a place of loving him, of being loyal to him, uh, and of worshiping him in the proper way. I have four observations in this text this morning. All four observations are about God. 
uh, and how he impacts our lives. Uh, the first one is really profound. It's good you're sitting down because this is going to absolutely blow you away. The first observation is that God is speaking. Yeah, now, clearly, when you see this passage, you see that I, that I actually deduced that out of that. Your immediate thought was, whatever we're paying Tom, it's not enough. He just is so brilliant and so, so astoundingly bright that it's just amazing. But let's not, let's not miss the obvious, okay? Because the obvious is actually here very important. God is having audience with his people. He, he could have said to Moses, Moses, I'm going to tell you some stuff, and I want you to head down the mountain and then tell the people. And if you've seen Charlton Heston, that's what he did. He got the words, there was laser beam, and then he went down and he told him. If you've seen Mel Brooks in that scene, he actually had 15 commandments and he dropped some along the way and it became the 10 commandments. But then he went down. I know I have a sick sense of humor. I just absolutely adore Mel Brooks and just about everything he's ever created. I know that says I never got out of seventh grade, but that's okay. Um, it wasn't that way. It wasn't a private audience. God is speaking to the entire nation as they're assembled together, which means he isn't going to mince words and he doesn't want his words to be misunderstood. He could have sent Moses. He could have sent Aaron. He didn't. He says, I'm going to speak to the people directly. In fact, if you go back and you study Exodus chapter 19, the entire chapter of Exodus 19 is the people of Israel preparing for what God is going to say when he meets with them in the coming days. So think about Maybe you've been invited to uh, a wonderful big wedding celebration, or perhaps you've been invited to some uh, prestigious ball in the community, and, and, the, and it's one of those invites where it's really special. I'm pretty sure that if you take that seriously, it isn't like 20 minutes before you're getting ready to leave to go to it that you say, I wonder what I'm going to wear. I wonder if I have something that, that fits this occasion. You've thought about it ahead of time. You've prepared ahead of time. Why? Because it's special. God's speaking. This is a special moment in the life of Israel, and he speaks directly to them. He speaks to them face-to-face, so to speak, because there, there can't be any room for misinterpretation. If, if I didn't show up and you come back and say, well, here's what I heard, well, then I got to decide whether I'm going to trust what you said. I have to trust whether it's your interpretation. But if I hear the words for myself then it's on me. It's my responsibility to consider what's being said. And so God speaking is not a small thing. He's speaking not just to the nation, but he's speaking to every individual. He's speaking to you and he's speaking to me this morning. So the question isn't, is God speaking? It's clear that God spoke all of these words and he, and he continues to speak today through his word. But the first application question that I ought to ask, and, and any of us I think ought to ask in this passage is, Am I listening? And I don't mean am I hearing what's being said. I mean, am I listening? Am I paying attention? Am I understanding the weight of the message? Uh, you know, if Cindy and I are home, and it's kind of a casual thing, and, and she says, hey, hey, could you do this? Uh, okay, sure, I'll, 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 whatever it is, sure, I'll, I'll run and do it. But there's no, you know, if I don't do it for 10 or 15 minutes, it, it's not that huge of a deal. It's kind of a casual thing. But if Cindy really wants me to get something done, she says, hey, would you stop what you're doing and look at me for just a minute? And my mom did that when I was kidding. I've told you that before. My mom would grab my face and she'd like, I say, now, are you listening? And, and rightly so, because I rarely did. But if it's something serious, I better pay attention. I better, I, better, I better listen to the words being said. That's the first question you have to answer this morning, friends. I can't answer it for you. I can only answer it for me. Are we listening to the voice of God. He's speaking. Secondly, not only does God speak, but God does what any polite person would do. He introduces himself. 
he, he, he takes a moment to say, hi, I'm God, and, and, and what's your name? That, that's a very natural thing. He says, I am the Lord your God. He immediately identifies himself. He excuse me, introduces himself. He says, my name is the Lord. I am, I am Yahweh. Perhaps you've heard that Hebrew name before. The notion there is that he is the eternal God. He dwells in the eternal now. There is no past and there is no future with God. God encompasses everything all the time, everywhere. And so when he introduces himself, he introduces himself correctly. I am the Lord, your God. The, this notion of uh, I am. If you go back to Exodus chapter 3, when God first introduced himself to Moses and he said, listen, Moses, I'm going to send you back to Egypt and you're going you're gonna to bring my people Israel out. I've heard their cries. I've heard their groaning. We're going to get them out of there and I'm going to use you. You're going to be my mouthpiece. Moses then begins to make every excuse under the sun why he shouldn't be the guy to go and do this. And one of his excuses, he says to God, okay, I get there and I get all the leaders together and I say, hey guys, I'm here sent by God to bring you out of, of Egypt. What if they say, who sent you? What am I supposed to say? What's your name? Now, that notion isn't all that far-fetched. Polytheism, the belief that there were a lot of different gods doing a lot of different things, was very prevalent in Moses' day. It was very prevalent. And Egypt had dozens of gods for all kinds of different things. So, fair question, who do I say sent me? What am I supposed to say? And, and God said, tell him my name. I am that I am. I am the eternal holy, perfect God. There is no other. What God is saying here as he introduces himself is I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses, you, you and me, nation of Israel, we have history together. I am the Lord. I, I am the God. But notice also that he personalizes it in the introduction as he introduces himself. I am the Lord, your God. We belong to one another. There's a relationship here that pre-exists your human life, and it will live long after you're gone. Your God means that we belong to each other. It means that, that God is saying, I've chosen you. Are you willing to accept my name? Are you willing to accept my identity? You know what the word Israel literally means? Sons of God, children of God. It's in their name. We are now in, in the Christian age, we're called the new Israel. Believers in Jesus are, are identified as children of God. And that's how God introduces himself to Israel. And that's how he introduces himself or maybe perhaps reminds us of his name this morning. But when you receive someone's names, you're, you're agreeing to certain terms, are you not? When, when you offer your name to someone else or someone is willing to accept your name, is, isn't there uh, uh, an agreement that takes place? When you uh, ask someone to marry you, what do you call that? What's, that? what's the name for it? Thank you. Proposal. Proposal. Boy, I, I'm worried about the guys in this congregation. We didn't have a lot of romantic proposals going on when we... we you're making a suggestion. What's the, what's the worst thing going to happen to you when you're at the ballpark down on one knee and you're on the jumbotron proposing? What's the worst thing that happen? She says, no way. <laughs> Sorry. Not interested, Buster. That's like, oh my goodness, I just totally humiliated myself in front of 40,000 people. I made a proposal to Cindy. I said, hey, you want to take on my name? You want to take on my name for the rest of your life? Because if you do, let, let, me, let me tell you what I have to offer. And I, and I made a proposal. And to a proposal, there's a yes 
and there's a no. The yes is if they accept it is, I'm going to join with you. We're going to be identified together for the rest of our lives. And therefore, we're going to say no to everybody else. And God, by introducing himself this way, I'm the Lord your God, immediately challenges you and me to believe not only that he is God, but that we can belong to him, that, that he loves us, that he wants to be in relationship with us. Thirdly, not only does God speak and God introduce himself, but God also identifies himself. He, he, he broadens not only his name, but he begins to, to talk about his action, about his activity, about, about what he is busy doing. So he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This brought you out language is very, very important because it's an action. God is speaking not only to, to his identity, but he's speaking to what he spends his time doing. He is the God of liberation. He is the God who saves from oppression. I mentioned earlier how, how long it took for us as a country to figure out and, and, and get this notion right and do away with slavery. And we're still fighting to this day and probably will be long after all of us are dead and gone to, to come to grips with everything that that should mean, that, that the ideal that it should be for all of us. The nation of Israel was, it was in an infinitely more severe, hopeless bondage than that because there were no national leaders at all who thought Israel should go free. And Egypt was the greatest military might in the world at that time. There was no way the children of Israel were going to be able to figure out how to escape from the thumb of the Egyptians. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> so God had to intervene. God had to step in and he says, I am the God who liberates. I am the one who brought you out. And you know what? That reminds you and me this morning that we had to be brought out. God said to the children of Israel, look over your shoulder. What do you see in the background? You see the nation of Egypt down there to your south. You're not there anymore. And there's only one reason why you're not there. It's because I've liberated you, because I've redeemed you, because I have saved you by my power and by my strength and because of my love for you. And this morning, God is saying to all of us, look over Tom's shoulder. What do you see? You see an image of the cross of Christ. Why is that there? It's to remind us that we couldn't save ourselves. We were hopelessly lost. We, we were slaves to sin. Paul got it exactly right in Romans chapter 7. He says, all the good stuff I want to do, I can't get there. I can't ever get it right. And all the stuff I don't want to do, I'm sorry, I'm pointing to this side of the crowd. All the stuff I don't, I don't want to do, I was feeling the moments get a little too serious. I, I, I can't stop doing it. And, and what a wretched man I am. And the only thing that has the power to redeem that in our lives is the cross of Christ. Praise God that he introduces himself and identifies himself as the one who is the liberator. Because understanding that, understanding that we have been set free by the gospel of Jesus Christ, therefore obligates us to that grace. And it's interesting in Moses' day when, when this was, was happening in the ancient Near East, if you were saved by someone, say you're being attacked by a lion or something, and somebody came along and, and saved you from the lion and got you, got you out from under that and literally saved your life, you would spend the rest of your life being loyal to that person. You, you owed them the debt of your life. If you've ever talked to somebody who's in combat and they talk about someone who maybe really did literally save their lives in combat, they don't talk about that person flippantly. 
Like George saved my life. We were behind enemy lines and he got me and he pulled me out. And, and he, they talk about like, you know, I would do anything for George to this day. And that, that's exactly right. That's the notion here that as God identifies himself as the redeemer, he's calling us to give our lifelong allegiance to our benefactor. This, one of the questions we should ask ourselves this morning, is he my redeemer? Is my faith in him? Is my trust in him? Because that's where the New Testament goes. The New Testament expands our understanding so we can see that the cross of Christ is the evidence that God is going to redeem us from our slavery to sin and to evil and to death and to set us free to eternal life. And I think it's a fair question for for me to ask myself and for you to ask yourself, because I think the scriptures ask us this question, is there evidence of that allegiance? Could someone look at my life and say, you know what, Tom Ricks doesn't always get it right, but boy, does he love the Lord. Man, is there, a, is there a loyalty there that's really somewhat different? And there's a sense of worship in his life that, that shows that that allegiance really is where he says it is. There's a, there's a wonderful author that's written a lot about the Ten Commandments. His name is Glenn Stassen. And I'm going to read you just a real brief quote, quote from, from Professor Stassen. And he's kind of getting nitpicky in this. He's kind of saying some people look at the Ten Commandments like they kind of divide them like here's your relationship with God and here's your relationship with people. He doesn't like that. I think he's kind of being nitpicky. But listen to what he says about how God's liberation of us should impact our lives. Listen for that. The Ten Commandments are not arbitrary commands, nor are they divided into one table concerning vertical relationship to the Lord and a second table about horizontal relationship with neighbors. Not only do the Ten Commandments lack any statements supporting this division, but the themes of the covenant with God and delivering the vulnerable and needy unify all Ten Commandments. Let me read that to you again. The themes of covenant with God and delivering the vulnerable and the needy unify all Ten Commandments. So therefore, here's his conclusion. The Lord in the first table is the one who cares about justice for neighbors. Caring for justice for neighbors in the second table is the test of whether or not we are loyal to the Lord. So when you and I walk out of this building, and we, we grab our, our donut holes, and we have a little fellowship with one another, and then we go back to uh, our, our neighborhoods. We go back to our apartment buildings. We go back, I don't have to say school today. Isn't that great? Those of you that are students know you don't have to think about going back to school for a while. But wherever we find ourselves, in our businesses, in, in the ball teams that we're playing on, our kids are playing on, are we taking that, that sense of loyalty to Jesus? A sense of loyalty that, that I am the Lord your God who, who's delivered you from, from slavery, from the bondage of sin. You couldn't deliver yourself from it. You had no capacity to do that. God identifies himself that way. Could people identify God by looking at my life and see that, that setting free, that liberation? God speaks, God introduces, God identifies, and fourthly, God directs. And now we finally come to the actual commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. They're not the 10 suggestions. They're not the 10 things to consider. Uh, Literally in the Hebrew, they're called the 10 words. Perhaps you've heard the phrase the Decalogue, meaning 10 words. These are the 10 words that God has spoken, and this word is not up for debate. Now, we may choose to go a different way, but but we, we choose at our own risk. God says the best thing for you 
is not to take anything that's false, anything fake, anything that doesn't work, and put it in front of your relationship with me. Some people have said what God is saying there is he's the best of all the gods. You know, there are a whole bunch of deities, you know, kind of running around back then, and God's saying, you know, there's a sun god and a moon god and a harvest god. and all. Just make sure I'm at the top of the list. That, that's, the language doesn't allow for that. What God is saying is there are other spirits in the word. That word gods, right, the, the small g, gods, is a very technical term in the Hebrew that means spirit. It means power. The best place to, to find this would be in, in Psalm 84. We're not going to go there this morning. We don't have time. But in Psalm 84, God is identified as the Lord of hosts. And those hosts there are, are, are angels. They're, they're, they're spirits. And, and they're real. Scripture is very clear. We live in a physical world and we live in a spiritual world. You, you, you just have to know your Shakespeare to get this, right? You remember, you remember Hamlet talking to Horatio? There's more in heaven and earth, Horatio, than is in all of your philosophies. What was he saying to his friend? It's not just what you see. There, are, there is a spirit world that's out there. God isn't saying that there isn't a spirit world. What he's saying is there is no other divine. I alone am divine. So you shall have no other spirits, no other influence ahead of me. No other gods means I am the only one eternal, perfect God. And and if that is true, if the Bible is true, and this is how God has identified himself, and this is how God directs us, then anything, spirit, physical, whatever, anything that I put above him is going to be hurtful to me. Anytime I take God out of his rightful place in my mind or in my heart, I'm going to go down a bad pathway. And, and most of the rest of the Old Testament is about the people of Israel going down one bad pathway after another. And don't think that can't be you and me. We could be right next to them and lockstep with them when we allow other priorities to supersede our allegiance for and our love for God. We must keep him in his right place. When I proposed to Cindy... I was really scared. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was 22 years old when I, when I proposed. Anybody else been married? To, you're 22 or younger when you got married. Raise your hand. Oh, good. There are other fools in the world besides, <laughs> besides me. And, 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 and it's lasted. It's worked. But I got to tell you, I was scared on both sides of the coin because what if she said yes? I got to be a husband the rest of my life. And, and I, I'm not too sure about it. If I'll do okay on that. But what if she said no? I'd be crushed. My, my, my spirit would be totally destroyed. And, and I'd invested so deeply in the relationship and in the ring. I mean, I, I had to borrow money <laughs> for the ring. I, I, it was a whopping sum of money, $500. I mean, this ring was like from Cartier. It was amazing. Not really, but it was all I could afford at the time. And I paid $50 a month for 10 months to pay that guy back. He loaned me the money for that. But I was so scared on both sides of the coin because was I going to be able to keep Cindy in her rightful place? Was I, was I really going to be able to cherish her the rest of my life? Was I, was I really going to be the husband I should be? Now, I tease her every once in a while. I'm like, you know, if you don't treat me very well, I'm sure there's a lot of gals out there. And she's like, yeah, name one. <laughs> okay, next conversation. <laughs> but you know what? You know why I don't know any? Because I'm not looking for any. I want her in that place in my life. I don't want anybody else in that spot. She deserves my loyalty. She deserves my love. How much more, Heavenly Father, who says, I'm the Lord your God. I'm the, I'm the liberator. I'm the redeemer. Don't put any other gods before me. How much more does he deserve 
our love because of his deep love for us. God speaks directly. He introduces himself clearly. He identifies himself as Redeemer, thereby calling his people to honor him as God alone. So the ultimate question this morning, is God chief in my heart? Is he chief in your heart? There's one other passage of scripture, and we're going to end with this, that I haven't, haven't come back to, and that's the passage out of John's gospel. Jesus is very clear about his keeping the first commandment when he speaks to his critics. He says to them, I've come down from heaven, which really, if you stop and think about this for a second, what he's saying is, I was God before I got here, and I'm still God now. That, that was messing with people's minds. That, that was a lot for them to take in, but he wanted to make it very clear. I'm God in the flesh. And I've come down from heaven, but as God in the flesh, I'm submitting myself to my Father's will. I haven't come down here to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. There's Jesus keeping the first commandment perfectly. And then he tells us a little bit of the backstory. What is the Father's will? For this is my Father's will, that everyone who looks to me, that looks to the Son and believes in him, should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on that last day. It's a promise of redemption. It's a promise of a God who liberates that, liberates. Where have I heard that before? And God spoke all these words, saying, I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray. God, we want to put you in your rightful place, but so often, I'll speak for myself, I fall short. You have loved me with an eternal love, and sometimes I just, I don't reciprocate. You have been faithful, and at times, more than I'd care to mention, I am unfaithful. Lord Jesus, thank you that you kept the law perfectly for us so that you could go to the cross for sinners like me. Father, we thank you for these 10 words, and we thank you for this first word. You call us to to put you where you belong, to give you our loyalty and to give you our worship. And and you show us the cross as the greatest demonstration of your redemption. So, Father, empowered by the Lord Jesus and his Holy Spirit and his word, allow us to have no other gods before you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.